0: Cleveland Clinic, before before COVID hit, they were doing about 3,000 virtual visits a month. And then in March, they did 60,000. Oh, good Lord.
1: I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road.
2: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe.
1: I was reading a Wall Street Journal article about the business prospects of contact tracing apps. Now, these are the apps we're going to put on our phone to track how coronavirus spreads. The central question of the article was how these apps will make money. And I thought, we're in a pandemic. Who cares how they make money or if they do? Well, the Wall Street Journal cares, right? The reporter, Tomio Jaron had quoted venture capitalist Kristen Baker Spohn of CRV. You're quoted in that article. In the first paragraph, he says the business prospects for these contact tracing apps remains unclear. He's writing for the Wall Street Journal. So, I mean, he's going to write about the profitability of the apps. Mm-hmm. He's asking, what's the business model attracting a deadly disease? And then there's one more thing I want to read you from. It's from the founders of Viz.ai, which you're a major investor in. Mm -hmm. Kristen's, speaking about you, Kristen's experience at commercializing the healthcare space is invaluable. I don't want you to think I'm, you know, some sort of crazy left wing radical because we're doing a podcast about capitalism after all, (laughs) but maybe not the time to commercialize the healthcare space. I mean, it was broken Mm -hmm. before this. It's broken now. And I think profit's got to be one of the reasons it's broken.
0: Hmm. Um, I mean, you know, that's that's certainly one view. I think the, uh, you know, the view on commercialization as um, as being a bad thing, I think is, uh, I would I would disagree with. Um, you know, and I think about when new technologies or companies want to have a great impact on a space. You know, that great impact is is not necessarily fueled by uh, by nonprofit and by philanthropy, and so when new innovators are coming into the space, they think that it's important that they focus on, you know, what's a business model that's going to help them grow so that they can have the impact that they want to have. Um, and in, in order to have a great impact, you do need to also have a great and regenerating business.
1: Well, but I'm, aren't there things in our world that are not a business? I mean, local oh, yeah, local schools are not a business.
0: <laughs> of course. Of course, and uh, you know, I'm not trying to say that I think every aspect of the healthcare industry needs to be commercialized. Um, you know, I, I completely disagree disagree with that statement. Um, I do think that what the coronavirus and the COVID response is showing is that we do need greater, and, and I think there will be renewed emphasis on public health. Um, and I do think that there needs to be greater collaboration and coordination among health systems. Um, but also, you know, I think that we see that, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And in order to have incentives for people to build new technologies and invest in doing the really hard work to have the impact and outcomes that they want to have, um, there do need, there does need to be a commercial incentive there um, in order to be able to have Aligned incentives and have people use and find value um, from products and services.
1: There's no question. There are parts of healthcare that are just amazingly broken. Congress is debating something called surprise billing, and they're debating mm-hmm. it. Yeah, De- surprise billing <laughs> is a debate. I mean, this is this is out of whack. I mean, our our healthcare is very strange compared to the rest of the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, and if we think about the rest of the world as well, you know, there are a lot of um, a lot of countries that have both a public option as well as a public system as well as private insurance and private pay as well. So. Um, completely agree with you that that both elements need to be there. You know, surprise billing is something that, that should be unobjectionable, um, right? <laughs> when we go in and, and get a, a car mechanic to work on our ignition, we should know exactly what we're going to be paying on the other end of it Right, when, when even the healthcare surprise.
1: system calls it surprise billing. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, and and of course the the healthcare system will call it something different. They call it balance billing, right? It'll be uh, of course. Something where yes. they're going to come um, back to to the consumer in order to pay. So you know, I completely agree with you on, on that one, and I do think that there needs to be greater transparency around what things cost um, in healthcare. And not only that, just the shift from fee for service towards value based care um, can also have a, a great impact. Well, on explain
1: that. that to me. What's the difference?
0: Sure. You know, when I um, what we typically have for most commercial insurance today, so most of the insurance that you and I get um, and is paid for, oftentimes by our companies. Um, that is typically done on what's called a fee-for-service basis, right? So um, hospitals, doctors, clinicians make more money based on the services that are provided to us um, versus something that's value-based care, which is much more focused on the outcome. So incentivized to keep us healthy, to reduce the amount of services or costs uh, that are that are needed to create great health outcomes. Um, and so we're starting to see, and we've been seeing a shift towards value-based care, Um, towards those outcomes based payment models. Um, But it's been slow. And I think that what we're going to see coming out of this, uh, you know, not coming out of this, but uh, coming out of um, COVID response might be an accelerated move towards the adoption of those types of um, financial structures.
1: It is interesting. I mean, whether it's work from home or other things that and, you know, big comparison to compare it to the second world war and and women entering the Mm -hmm. workforce. But it's one of those instances where we may be able to look back and say, you know, this is where that pivoted and whether it's work from home or healthcare.
0: Yeah. I think what we're seeing on the, on the pivot is, um, is everyone really focused on what's the best way for people to, to get the care that they need right now. You know, I think that for a long time we've had the ability to do telehealth and remote care. Um, But one of the challenges has been there's, you know, it hasn't been adopted in the way that it it could have been to deliver that care. And, you know, I see that as as really three reasons. One, you know, regulations, incentives and behavior. Um, Changing behavior is hard. And so what we're seeing right now is um, drastically reduced barriers to entry on the the regulations and on that behavior change. Um, So we're seeing people, you know, not only doctors, but patients. Adopt telehealth and adopt remote care in droves um, in a way that they haven't before, and the regulations have been, you know, lightened and loosened in order to enable people to get the care that they need. Um, the challenge has been also that you know doctors in it haven't been paid for that kind of care, um, providing care outside of the four walls of the hospital. And so I think in order for that type of care delivery to stick and to be a meaningful change going forward. And um, do you think that incentives are going to need to be aligned there as well?
1: So when I go to the doctor and I say, hey, what's this, you know, this little spot on my cheek uh, and he takes a look at her, she takes a look at it. That's a different sort of billing than if he or she did it on a Zoom call?
0: Right now, um, so up until uh, up until recently, that had been billed differently and reimbursed differently, um, based on on different people's insurance. And so what we have seen is a shift towards um, towards paying for that type of remote patient monitoring or remote care. Um, but telehealth has not been billed in the exact same way as if I'd gone into the doctor and been billed. Even though the uh, exact same that. thing was happening. That's exactly right. And not even the exact same thing. It might have been better for me to be at home. Um, you know, not only from a convenience factor, if, you know, if if it takes 15 minutes for me to send a picture, send a text and receive a response versus two hours that I'm taking out of my day to commute and, um, you know, go into a, into a doctor there, you know, the staff there, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not only, um, potentially better outcomes or the same outcomes, but a lot more efficient for myself and and likely for the clinician.
1: Yeah. And who stands in the way of that? Is it the insurance companies that are saying, no, we won't pay as much for, you know, this telehealth thing as we do it for an in-person visit?
0: So we're starting to see um, insurance companies, you know, and the the government being a major one um, starting to pay for those kinds of things. You're um, saying that that the government
1: through Medicare and Medicaid is saying that we won't pay. Okay, gotcha
0: yeah um and so we're starting to see that shift where it will be uh, it is being um reimbursed in a much more meaningful way, but it's still not at the same level as going in person and, and getting care but i don't think it's just the payment model right part of it has also been up until this point consumer demand we haven't seen consumers really pull or adopt telehealth in the way that we have um you know in the way that frankly a lot of us expected, and I think that what um the pandemic is showing us is that. Uh, with this need, um, people are people are adopting it, and providers, meaning doctors and, and nurses, are adopting it uh, very quickly as well. There's some really interesting stats coming out of some of the the healthcare systems that I've talked to around. I think it was um, Stanford went from doing, I think it was 400. Or, uh, here, let me grab the. Sure, take it down. So I think it was, yeah, Cleveland Clinic before, you know, before COVID hit, they were doing about 3,000 virtual visits a month. And then in March, they did 60,000. Oh, good Lord. Um, yeah. And so we're, uh, we're seeing the, the adoption of virtual visits. Um, you know, we're seeing a, a digital transformation that should have taken about 10 years to happen. It has happened in a matter of weeks. Um, and I think we're seeing that across the board, whether it's, you know, remote uh, or working from home. Um, and the adoption of digital services, but we're seeing it for sure in healthcare as well. Um, starting it with telehealth, but I think we're going to see it across the board.
2: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe, it's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. So when it comes to other things with, you know, computerized medicine, you do need government, you know, to some degree, get out of the way when when Nest wants to upgrade my thermostat from version (laughs) two to version two point one. Right. It pushes it out overnight. If you want Mm -hmm. to make a tiny tweak to a medical devices software, you've got to get Washington's permission first.
0: Yeah, the um, and the FDA I think has been making really good strides into underst- you know not only understanding but adopting um, and adapting to those changes. Uh, and so we've seen this you know with uh, an example here being Viz.AI AI um, with software as medical device, and they received FDA clearance. Um, and the FDA is really understanding that listen, AI models by definition are going to continue to be learning models and adapt and evolve over time. Um, and so I think the FDA is, is making strides there, but I do think that there's uh, there's a way to a ways to go to understand that, you know, unlike a typical medical device, which is approved, and then in order to make a change, you need to go back for a new approval, recognizing that software, in order for it to improve over time, can't go back through those same processes um, and does need to adapt and evolve.
1: Where do you think that is coming from on the government side? Is that just the evolution of government as they get more used to computers and AI? Is that uh, you know, uh, leadership from Republicans who are more laissez-faire. Where do you think that's coming from?
0: Um, that's a good question. You know, I think that the, uh, I think it's coming from a- you know, the, the optimist in me says it's coming from a recognition that this is A, how the world works, and B, how, uh, how better care is going to be delivered more efficiently over time. Um, I'm also not so naive to think that there aren't significant entrenched interests that are uh, battling from all sides, but I think that um, the arc is, is moving in the right direction.
1: They say death, death, death. Well, Obamacare is death. That's the one that's death. And besides that, it's failing, so you won't have it anyway.
0: For example, I think every, there should be health care for everyone. I have a plan how to do that that's
1: rational and will cost a hell of a lot less and will work. Investors certainly don't like uncertainty and there's uncertainty in healthcare because the current president wants to get rid of one aspect of healthcare and some of his opponents and including several who may be the next vice president of the United States have said they want to get rid of the current healthcare system. How do you (laughs) invest in an environment where the future of the entire system is in doubt?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's a question I, I ask, I ask myself a lot and get a lot and the way we think about it and the way I frame it is, um, is really, when you think about the risks to it, you think about pen stroke risk, right? But I also think about pen stroke opportunity. So with the the last administration, with the advent of ACA, uh, excuse me, with the passage of the ACA- And I'm just going to break
1: in and say to those, Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Oh, thank you. You're, you're thank more you. than welcome.
0: Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Um, yeah. So, you know, it wouldn't be a healthcare podcast if we didn't throw in some fun acronyms. <laughs> so <laughs> apologies for that. Um, but that also created opportunity uh, for, uh, specifically funding for um, the move towards digitization of records. Um, and so, yes, there's pen stroke risk uh, for a lot of different um, areas of investing in healthcare. But like I said, there's also pen stroke opportunity.
1: Now, I have not heard that term before. Pen stroke by the by you mean the signature of a president of the United States.
0: A uh, president, or you know, frankly, even at the state level, I think that what we see with policy and and what I think about with healthcare is healthcare much like politics is inherently local. Um, there are health systems that are responding at a very local level and understanding um, the specific needs of of the community, the specific needs of the state. Um, and when it comes to things like Medicaid, for example, states have a lot of um, option value in, in what they want to do there and how they want to invest. And so a lot of this is being done, not just at the federal level, but also at the state level.
1: I've noticed that there are people and patients who are willing to go, not even through their insurance company, but, you know, like they would order an Uber or a Lyft, they are, they're going on their phones and to these private organizations that can give them medical answers right now and, they, and they'll pay for it out of pocket.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And companies like Wheel, for example, are powering the clinical workforce behind a lot of that care, both asynchronous as well as um, video and telehealth visits. And so what they enable is if I'm a nurse and I want to um, continue to practice at at the top of my credentials and provide telehealth care, what Wheel does is they aggregate demand, aggregate patient care across a number of different companies, and they enable me to come online and do visits with patients um, in a very seamless way.
1: So a qualified screen nurse can do much like an Uber driver does and say, you know, I'm home from work, but I've, I've got a couple hours in which I'm feeling up for it. I'll, I'll go on Wheel and be a nurse.
0: That's exactly right, and I think that one of the the really great things that we're seeing here is, um, it enables nurses to stay on the front lines of care as well. You know, unlike, you know, my thesis here is also that nurses, really great nurses and doctors, don't want to just sit at their computers all day. They want to continue to practice, um, but maybe they want to earn additional additional income um, by providing telehealth visits as well, uh, and maybe again, not not take an overnight shift that week if if their kids are sleeping at home.
1: So Kristen Bakerspoon is fixing at least part of the healthcare system through her investments in WHEEL and PillPack and Viz AI. I never did convince her the system is irrevocably broken, or at least I failed to get her to say it. But I'm going to leave you with this. The story of a woman who had a baby and got two bills for the same procedure. She paid one, but the hospital kept demanding she pay the other one too. The new mother got on the phone, tried to reason and work through the bureaucracy, but was told she'd be put in collections if she didn't pay twice for the same bill. So she did. She paid double. Now, I could tell that story to Kristen, who, after all, is an accounting and finance expert in addition to being a healthcare expert. But I don't have to. She already knows that story very well. Now, you know all there is to know about accounting and healthcare billing. You've worked in healthcare your whole life, but you couldn't get the hospital and the insurance company to even listen to the error, much less do something about it. Yes.
0: It was a very frustrating experience. W- right when you, you were at Collective Health,
1: you did a webinar for companies that were interested in delivering the best maternity benefits to their employees. I mean, the fact that you just—I said, you know what? Fine, I'll pay a double bill. Is 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 so broken? It's it's indefensible. Maybe again, medicine should maybe not be for profit.
0: You know, I think that that. Um I agree that it's indefensible um, and I agree that there should be uh, regulations and policies against that kind of balanced billing um, and there's significant improvement that can be drawn from that I think the to, to draw the conclusion that it shouldn't be for profit um, you know I, I disagree with that I do think that there's an element of um, Innovation and invention that can come from having financial incentives to to grow and improve businesses, but I think what's broken down has been um, has been frankly the the coordination as well as the transparency of how that all should work.
1: Why did you decide to just pay the double bill?
0: Yeah, it's um, you know the the (laughs) the decision was really around. Two different factors. One was the frustration with how many different phone calls and hours it was taking while I was trying to, you know, keep this adorable newborn alive and well-fed and uh, and get some sleep myself. Um, but the other component, you know, this is probably a story that that resonates with a lot of folks. Is you know we were a young family looking to buy our first house, and this was a bill that um, if it went unpaid was going to impact my credit score. And so that impacted my credit score. Uh, you know, I did a very Simple cost benefit analysis that impacted my credit score was gonna impact my ability to and my husband's ability to to buy a house together. So I decided to pay pay that bill. Extra. It was a very defeating and frustrating <laughs> decision.
1: Kristen Baker Spohn, healthcare investor at CRV. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes at at PressHereTV.com.